Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, bringing you the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive startups and leaders. Subscribers get a new episode every Thursday at 6pm, and I'm your host, James Somerville. Hey everybody, today we're talking about the future of women's healthcare. My guest this week is Gloria Lau, who is co-founder and CEO of Alpha which is a health services brand, and they enable easy access to online diagnosis and prescription treatment. So Gloria has, interestingly, what she describes as a classical, boring Silicon Valley background, I think she says on the episode, but it's certainly not boring, it's anything but. She used to head up data products at LinkedIn. She was VP of data at a company called Timefall, which was acquired by Google. She's consulting faculty at Stanford. She's got a PhD and an MSc from Stanford's Engineering and Computer Science. She's got a BSc from UCLA in Engineering. And she's the inventor on 11 patents in the area of recommendation systems and data science. She's also authored over 40 academic papers on information retrieval systems. And she's not just a startup founder either, so Gloria sits on the other side of the table in investment. So she's a venture partner at AV8, and she's an equity partner in a different fund. And what she does there is select good health tech investments. So as you can imagine, on this episode, there's plenty to learn from Gloria. As always, for more information and our content, you can check out our website, you can follow us on all our socials, and all of that stuff is in the description of this episode, as well as the contact details for Gloria. So, check it out, message us, message Gloria, and above all, enjoy the episode. Gloria, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for having me on board. You are very welcome. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Gloria? I am based in Palo Alto, California. Excellent. So, Gloria, obviously we've had a quick call before, so I know a little bit about your background and stuff, which sounds really cool. But for the benefit of our listeners, why don't you tell us a bit about your story? Yeah, I'll start from the beginning. I have a, um, I typically say a very classic, boring Silicon Valley background. Um, I got my PhD (laughs) from Stanford um, in engineering and computer science. Very, very boring, very standard Silicon Valley. Uh, you say standard Silicon tech- Valley though, but it's still it's still quite cool. <laughs> I I think like when you walk in downtown Palo Alto, you run into people like me every. Two you get desensitized, so. I suppose. To the, uh, <laughs> I did a PhD and then I did a startup and. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I was at Google. I was at LinkedIn. Like this is very very standard. Very oh common. wow! Just dropping dropping the- nuggets there. Yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> in, in fact, I was actually at a dinner party a couple of nights ago. Uh, it was twelve of us, and the intro started out being, you know, I, "I got a PhD from Stanford." Blah blah blah. <laughs> and by the fourth person, which was me i stopped saying that because it was Brilliant. the same thing over and over, over and over. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow so yeah i have a, a phd in engineering and uh, computer science from stanford i'm a consulting faculty at stanford although i don't actually spend a whole lot of time there um i usually spend my time there with startups so i mentor startups i help out with various initiatives at stanford i don't have any active teaching or research role 
um, after I got my PhD there, I was in, again, like classic, typical Silicon Valley journey. Um, I was at LinkedIn for a little bit. I was a data scientist and um, I was at a startup also doing data science. The startup was acquired by Google. Same role was data scientist. <laughs> that was my entire career in the Valley. So all I know how to do was basically an engineer building data science recommendation systems in various leadership roles in small companies, big companies. And that's my upbringing, I would say. And when you say data science and building recommendation systems, what does that actually mean practically? What were you doing at LinkedIn and the other places? Yeah, so it's really, really cool. Um, a lot they, LinkedIn has one of the best data sources on the planet bar none. So think about on the internet where people actively try to best represent themselves with data, right? Like that's LinkedIn. Interesting. So it's yeah. an impressive data set that really drew me into the company. Uh, my team was responsible for a lot of the standardizing data, a lot of understanding what you type into your LinkedIn profile. So when you go to LinkedIn, like all the features that you see are basically recommendation systems, right? Like you look at the feed, it's a bunch of recommended things that you should read, right? You look at your profile, yeah. it tells you what you should update, right? You look at connections, it tells you who you should connect to because you're likely, um, you likely know that person, right? So all of those are based on these algorithms and the algorithms typically are garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> yeah. If I don't know what you type in, I can't really recommend any good stuff for you. So my team was responsible for a lot of infrastructure, a lot of standardizing the data. So let's say you type in, um, one good example is UCB. It could, it could mean UC Berkeley. It could mean UC Boulder. It could probably mean some other university in the UK, right? So things like that, we try to understand what you mean and standardize the data so that we can build better recommendation systems on top of it. My team also built a lot of the actual recommendation algorithm as well. Oh, nice. And then you said very casually that you were at a startup bought by Google. So tell me all about that. Yeah, it was a very, very fun startup. I don't tell the story very often, but uh, I was working for my uh, former intern at LinkedIn. <laughs> so the 25, again, very, very, wow. very Silicon Valley. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> working for your former intern. Wow, that is cool. Yeah, so... Um, one of my interns at LinkedIn, uh, he worked for me for a summer. We stay friends and he's super awesome. He was doing a yeah. PhD at Stanford at that time. I was always involved at Stanford, right? I knew his advisor at Stanford. Yeah. It was a very Stanford crowd. So he was studying uh, computer science. How do you sort of like using behavioral science, behavioral economics? How do you get someone to be more productive with their time, right? Mm. Um, so he dropped off from Stanford <laughs> to build a startup and I joined them. Um, the startup is called Timeful. It is helping people to be more productive with time. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you probably wouldn't have heard of it. If you've heard of it, it's probably because one of the co-founders is Dan Ariely. Uh, he wrote a book on predictably irrational. Um, he's a Duke professor and a pretty well-known behavioral economist. So Dan is one of the co-founders of the company. Um, Jacob that's by, incredible uh, so literally the podcast I've just recorded previously has met him and was talking about him on last week's podcast so that's quite uh, <laughs> quite interesting yeah yeah small world um, but yeah so that was the startup we were building recommendation systems on your calendar right so you can imagine the data science the, the uh, okay. behind it so let's say you come and tell us that you want to uh, you want to drink water 
more often, right? So we put it on the calendar, we remind you, we tell you when's the best time, that sort of thing. So I run that team and the oh, cool. startup was super fun. It was short. We were quickly acquired by Google and it became a few features in Google Calendar. Very nice. Yeah, it was, a, it was, um, it was again, like one of these things, the data is really, really fascinating. I mean, it's a different scale compared to LinkedIn, yeah. right? But uh, some of the data nuggets, this is more consumery than, yeah. than um, enterprise. Some of the data nuggets are really fun. Like we have all these people who tell us that, you know, I want to call mom. And when you look at the data, no matter how hard we recommend that you call mom on a Wednesday night, people just don't do it. <laughs> they would rather do laundry than call mom. And we have data to show that too. How quickly was that bought then? How, how, how fast did it go? Uh, the, I think the company was around for under two years. So we raised yeah, this around Series A and uh, shortly after Series A, uh, we were bought by Google. That is cool. You must have learned a lot during that time. Yeah, it was quite a learning experience. Um, I think most of the learning was the transition from big company to small. Mm. When I was at LinkedIn, it was bigger, right? I joined LinkedIn before the IPO. Um, I was there for almost four years. By the time I left LinkedIn, I think it was over 8,000 people. Wow. And then I went to a little startup, right? So that was one transition, just like understanding how things work in a tiny startup where you try to find resource you work with you know existing vendors on the market you try to find you know let's say um, a payment system that you can use that sort of thing right yeah i think that was one part of that the other part was just like the acquisition Mm. uh, was quite interesting google is one of the best um if not the best acquirers they are professional about the process Um, everybody they bought the whole team we were 20 people um, and yeah, the process was very smooth, um, even though, you know, it's stressful with any sort of M&A. Yeah, sure. So did you get bitten by the bug then when you were in the smaller startup? And is that what kind of spurred you on to do your own? Yeah, I would say there were twofold. One, um, I did leave LinkedIn wanting to start my own company. So I had always wanted to build something on my own. Um, and I thought, you know, there was this great opportunity. I know the CEO and I know the whole team, but basically the research project from Stanford very well, right? So that's one. And I was thinking that maybe I'll join a small startup to see how the sausage is made and learn something before yeah. I venture out on my own. That's one side of it. The other side was also just like seeing how, um, it's just like, you know, like I have, I have certain um, I would say like transition path, <laughs> uh, really like learn knowing people in that space is helpful because when you were, when you're at a bigger company, your entire network, it's, you know, people at LinkedIn, people at bigger company that may or may not be helpful when you start your own business. Right. So mm. being in a smaller company, that's also very helpful. What was, I guess, your motivation for leaving, starting your own thing? I mean, how did that, how did that transition go? Yeah, I left Google to start Alpha Medical. I would say like I left Google to start something in healthcare. So um, as you heard, right, I have no prior healthcare background. I was an engineer through and yeah. through. Um, and I you know, didn't know a thing about healthcare. <laughs> now I know a lot about it. <laughs> so I'll tell you what, though, looking at, looking at the system with fresh eyes, though, I suppose, you know, particularly because you've got that kind of not only the startup behind you, but also LinkedIn, Google, these are organizations that solve problems pretty efficiently. So to actually look at healthcare with, with eyes that have only, you know, seen and grown that sort of stuff, 
it's an interesting perspective to then view what is a cumbersome system full of problems, efficiencies just all over the place. It, that must have been interesting to look at, especially with a, with a problem-solving attitude. Yeah, definitely. I think that's why um, healthcare drawn a lot of techies into yeah. the space. Like when every one of us look at the space, it's just bizarre, right? Like my personal journey was uh, very, very personal as a patient. So I, well, um, so I was healthy my entire life, but I struggled with dermatology specifically. And especially when I was yeah. um, pregnant, both times, I had this bizarre rash on my belly. It was very, very uncomfortable. It was very itchy, couldn't sleep. And um, I had to basically experience the healthcare system in the U.S. for the first time. By the way, I'm an immigrant. I grew up in Hong Kong. It's a complete different system. Okay, <laughs> so, wow. When I when I was dealing with the dermatological situation, it was just really frustrating because um, I was bouncing between my OBGYN, my primary care physician, to a dermatologist, right? <laughs> and every time I was just really uncomfortable and I felt like the visit was unnecessary to begin with. Oftentimes they prescribed me some sort of topical steroid and I would wait in the pharmacy. And it's just, the experience was really broken for me. And after that, um, I started managing my kid's health. <laughs> and my son, he's healthy, but he struggled with fairly severe eczema when he was younger and with yeah. other things as well. So he was bouncing between his pediatrician, his dermatologist. We've seen his allergist many, many times. And that experience, again, was just really um, frustrating as a patient because again, like the visit is not necessary to be in person to be. It's the with. inefficiency, Direct. right? I can hear that in your voice. It's the, yeah. it's the, it's the, it's the unnecessary appointments, the unnecessary waiting, the unnecessary going to places that you didn't need to be. That seems to be the bit that's, that's irking you. Yeah. It's a uh, very, very inefficient and yeah. it's high friction and the wait time usually like waiting for an appointment is two to four weeks at a minimum, especially for specialists. <laughs> And um, after the fact, you then go and wait in the pharmacy again. And then when you get to the pharmacist, you discover they may or may not carry the medication. You yeah. need. So you come back in two days, right? It's just very annoying, especially yeah. for more chronic stuff like eczema or you know, things that you manage, right? So that I think especially as well, because with, with your engineering background and your startup background, you must view this in terms of pieces that fit together to form a system. And when you, when you look at it like that, I mean, even the way you've described it there, it just does sound ludicrous, doesn't it? It's clearly just a, a le big legacy system that's just ended up exactly the same as it was a few years ago because it's too hard to change. And unfortunately, all these people are, are just so used to it that when somebody like yourself comes along, who, as you say, has been healthy all their life and has something which you consider to be, you know, not life-threatening, but something that you want sorting, you just expect yeah. a better service because every other part of your life from banking to shopping to, you know, everything is just taken care of in such a better way. It's, I can understand your frustration. Yeah. Every piece of our life is being consumerized, right? Like from yeah. grocery shopping to watching TV to everything except for healthcare. Yeah. And now I know why, right? Like after running a business for a while, <laughs> is the misalignment in the system. The fact that, you know, like a dermatologist don't get paid if you don't come in, that's why they mm. drag you in, even though it's completely visual diagnosis, right? So that's, that's what we're trying to fix here. 
but yeah from my own frustration it's one like the inefficiency two when you look at it from just like macro system right like how do you bridge this gap like how do you get doctors to how do you get doctors to be more efficient right like <laughs> you have a growing amount of patients you only have so many doctors the only way you really increase efficiency is through technology so that's how i think about it as well interesting so with Alpha then, obviously the new, the new company that you, that you founded, what specifically was the problem that you were trying to solve with that? And then tell me all about the product and what it does. Yeah, so with Alpha, we are trying to build a completely new system of care for women. So our mission is to increase access to women's health. So I can walk you through some of what we do. So we meet patients where a lot of women start their healthcare journey, which is typically dermatological and reproductive health. So think about, you know, like things like um, acne treatment, birth control. We offer those treatment to patients. And we also extended our access point to uh, through the launch of membership last month where we're meeting women in more places that they need help on. So at the core of this is a asynchronous telemedicine platform. So mm. patients come in, you fill out a medical intake and asynchronously that information is shared with our doctors and you get a diagnosis typically within 24 hours. If there's a prescription, we can send it to your neighborhood pharmacy, or if you choose to, we can ship it using our pharmacy partner as well. So when you think about this, right, it solves a lot of my personal pain points in the system. Mm. That's what we're aiming to do. Okay, cool. And what's the business model there? And I guess the reason I ask is, you you definitely sparked something for me when you said you know everything else in life is consumerized from the way you watch tv to you know the way you do shopping, shopping and blah 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 yeah, right exactly and yeah i cannot live without amazon prime or prime now yeah same <laughs> and netflix and all, all, all the other stuff and it's interesting because you know i'm willing to pay 10 pounds a month for netflix or whatever i'm willing to pay whatever it is to get amazon prime and actually, me as a consumer, even in the UK, where we've got the, the National Health Service, you know, the publicly right. funded health service, I'm actually, you know, I'm going to go out there and say it, I'm actually willing to pay for services that solve my medical problems extremely quickly with the same kind of UI UX as I get from Netflix or Amazon. I am actually in that category now where my B2C spend on my own health is probably going to be up there pretty soon, just simply because I much rather just solve the problems without having to engage in systems that don't really work for me. Exactly. I think at the core of this is how the system was architected and how it should be architected, right? Like yeah. when you look at healthcare, it was architected for not patients, for the payers, right? In in the US, I don't know about the UK. I think the UK system is actually quite similar to Hong Kong, single payer, right? Yeah. But in the US, you have payers, a lot of these private payers, like your employer who are self-insured yeah. and uh, other payers like Medicare and Medicaid, right? The system is architected around the payer, what they fund, how do you get reimbursed, CPT codes, and so on and so forth. So when you look at this, the providers are living inside a payer system. They architect their day and the way they see patients around how they get paid, right? Like we can't yeah. blame them for it because this is the system. So the fundamental difference of consumerism is that we are starting from where the patients are right? Yeah. I want something that's built around my own experience. We are here for the patients. We want it to work entirely for you on your phone, right? When, I, when we talk about what we want to do, 
I oftentimes tell or I tell my 10 year old daughter that we, I want to put my chief medical officer, Dr. J, on the phone. And I also want to put Dr. J's very smart front desk on the phone. That's what we're trying to do. Because mm. when you look at the market, this statistics is not often quoted, but it's so true. About mm. 70% of conditions can be treated online. And there's no reason other than for the payer's reimbursement to you, for you to go in to see someone, right? So mm. when you think about this from a patient perspective, if, if you can get the alignments right, you definitely want to tr- get the treatment on your phone and not drag yourself in for a physical appointment. So what we're trying to do is to do all of those telemedicine services for you on the phone very, for a very low cost. And if we cannot treat you, we will refer you out to a brick and mortar doctor and book you an appointment for the remaining 30% or so. So that's our membership model. Interesting. So you are going B to C. Yes. Do you have the kind of, I mean, do you, do you have the insurance model as well and, and the employer model as well, or are you just doubling down on straight to consumer? Yeah, that's a great question. And this is fairly unique for us as well. We are direct to consumer and we are unique in the way we treat patients. So we treat you whether you have insurance or not. So if you have insurance, we can accept your insurance for medication that are reimbursable, right? For example, birth control, oftentimes, actually birth control always is covered by insurance. So you can use your insurance to pay for birth control, but we also accept cash. So those are, are one way we treat patients, right? Like whether you're close to a pharmacy or not, we treat you. You can elect to send your script to some pharmacy that's close to you. If not, we can also ship it to you. That's that's how we differ from, uh, I would say, a lot of players on the market. Interesting. Because accepting insurance payment, it's uh, non-trivial operationally. Well, absolutely. <laughs> and what, what sort of conditions do you guys treat? I know you said women's health and dermatology. I mean, what sort of things does that cover? Yeah, so with the launch of membership last month, we treat four main categories of uh, telemedicine. So urgent care, women's health, mental health, and uh, general wellness. So those four big category, I can give some examples. So in urgent care, some good examples are like UTI, um, cold and flu. Those are the type of urgent care treatments that we provide. Within women's health, mm. we do, let's say, preconception counseling. We do your yearly annual uh, wellness exam. We do um, a lot of um, uh, screening as well. Um, in the category of skin and hair, that's dermatological, let's say, you know, like hair loss, eczema, uh, rash, that type of conditions. Mm. And then the last bucket for mental health, we do anxiety screening, depression screening, that type of uh, mental health um, treatment. So we're looking to expand, like I said, like we want to meet women where they need medical care online. We want to be the first point of triage. And we're looking to add on to our services so that everything that can be treated online, we want to treat you online for. Yeah, I was about to use the same words that you did there. That you want to be the the first port of call, essentially. So you exactly. can treat, you can then you know deal with what needs to be dealt with extremely efficiently, and then refer in for the rest. And therefore, you know, you just fix the problem of too many people going downstream. Exactly, it, you got it exactly right, and that's what our mission is. Fundamentally, yeah. we want the patient not to worry. Mm. If you have any medical concern on your mind, come to Alpha Medical. We will treat you if we can treat you online. If not, we will make sure you get care for by referring you to a brick and mortar doctor 
and booking you an appointment. That's fundamentally what we're trying to do. Yeah. It's funny, you know, there's a lot, there's, I mean, there's a few startups doing this in a few different areas, like you're doing your own health. There's a few startups doing this in, in lots of different things in the UK. And because we have the public health system, I think there's, a, there's always a lot of criticism that, that gets thrown about that you're trying to privatize, you're trying to do this, that, and the other. And I can understand where people are coming from when they say things like that, but ultimately it's a, it's addressing what, what you and I have just said, which is that downstream issue. It doesn't matter if, if some people are willing to pay for stuff, I mean, this is in my opinion, right? But if, if some people are willing to pay for a service, which then treats them online in their own homes and they never then access the services downstream, you are helping the people that are then accessing that service downstream because their waiting times are less and they're able to see clinicians more. I think it's, it's, it's especially prevalent in mental health and, and, you know, it's interesting that you do mental health as well because, you know, resources there are so stretched because at the end of the day, if people need actual brick and mortar care in mental health, it's a human being that needs to speak to another human being. And that isn't particularly scalable. That needs to be reserved for the people that absolutely need it whilst we don't have much resource. And I think any technology that can help either, you know, fix that downstream issue or, you know, try and scale that one-to-one human interaction through things like telemedicine, CBT, you know, all the different, you know, there's chatbots that some people in, like and, right. and can engage with. You know, I was even, ta- even talking to someone on this podcast a couple of weeks ago um, about text-to-speech being used as sort of the next generation of chatbot that, you know, with yeah. an avatar, people can actually start scaling, you know, a lot more kind of empathic uh, versions of chatbots and things. You know, the, all of these things I think are really great because they work for the people that they work for right and, and nobody's here saying that these things are trying to treat absolutely everybody and it's the panacea and it's going to fix everything but whilst people are trying these things there are people using them there are people feeling benefits and for everybody else downstream that need that brick and mortar stuff i genuinely do believe it is helping because it is reducing those waiting times and allowing the the, the stretched resources down there to be to be given to the people that that really need it Yeah, I think that's so true. I often talk about in dermatology because that's what I'm very familiar with. Yeah. Um, So when you think about a dermatologist, right? Like when you think very macro, you only have so many dermatologists in the market. So in the US, the uh, number of doctors or number of specialties is kept by residency programs in universities, right? Those don't change almost ever. (laughs) They're like 10, 20 years. So you, you're only producing so many of these doctors, right? When you look at dermatologists, demand is so high. Usually the wait time is 29 days here. In some pocket of the country, it's 69 days to see a dermatologist. So when you look at their schedule, ideally, you want them to be basically like the in-office visits. You want it to be like biopsies, procedural, things that exactly. have to absolutely need them to be in person, right? And then the easier case, the, the, the cases that does not require an in-person visit, you should move all of those online. So that's how we think about the macro problem that we're trying to address. It is fundamentally access, right? Like you have yeah. this growing population they all need care for. Yeah. You have a very capped resource of doctors. So the only way you really bridge the gap is through technology. Things like asynchronous telemedicine. I'm going to geek out here for a little bit, right? Mm. Like when you asynchronize your visit, you can utilize your resources 
doctors a lot better. And obviously, we're building tools in the back end so that our doctors, our clinicians, our mid-level providers are more efficient as well. So with this model, you can, one, you can free up doctors to do what they absolutely have to be practiced in office for. And oftentimes when you talk to doctors, that's getting them to practice at the top of their license, which for a very macro view is how we should be using these resources. Sort of practicing at the top of their license. I really enjoy that. Yep. I'm, I'm definitely going to steal that going forward. It's a fantastic <laughs> <Please do>. phrase. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a really good summary of how technology can help though, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's literally it. That summarizes so much about what a lot of innovations in health tech are trying to do is just take care of all that kind of administrative stuff at the bottom so that people can genuinely do what they're trained to do. I mean, that was my biggest frustration as a doctor, you know, before I, before I actually ended up leaving to come and do this stuff, you know, my biggest frustration was why, why am I writing patients names? I'm writing the same patient's (laughs) name like 150 times a day. And I'm writing these like hospital numbers 150 times a day on like little tiny blood bottles and different pieces of paper. And it's like, what, what, why am I, why am I getting all of this stuff? Like this, this is like ridiculous that that I'm doing, but anyway, you know, I will wax lyrical about this on too many episodes. I think people get bored. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make sense for the system to train people like you, right? Like you spend five, 10 years in, in residency in the program and then put you to tasks that it's not, again, like at the top of your license, right? It's so weird, with telemedicine, yeah. with asynchronous telemedicine, you collect all that information up front. Obviously, there's a lot of intelligence in the collection funnel, right? Like we ask patients mm. questions. We ask them, you know, like take put photos, take a picture of your license. Everything is funneled into the EMR before a doctor sits down to um, triage the case. So that's the efficiency gain that we're looking for in the system. And when you, again, like think very macro, right? Like we also help with triaging and we've done it before with patients. For people who really need immediate help, let's say someone having suicidal thoughts, right? Those you get triaged right away. So from a system level, you're saving money. You're saving everybody money because the people who really need very urgent help, they get helped right away. Yeah, I'm on board. So we've made ourselves a little echo chamber here. We're <laughs> just agreeing with each other furiously. So I'm going to move us on then. So, I mean, it sounds great. Yeah, product sounds awesome. Uh, definitely, definitely a market there. And, you know, there's there's a few bits and bobs coming up in the UK, you know, in, in a similar space. We actually support a company called Juno that's doing it for maternal mental health specifically. Perfect. But yeah, so I'm I'm interested now in how you went from having this idea to then turning it into reality because obviously you've got an engineering background data science coding etc so so tell me about having the idea and then and then that bit where you converted it into mvp yeah um so that's a a really fun question <laughs> so remember my background's like super silicon valley right like yeah i was at linkedin google whatnot <laughs> you're gonna <laughs> say you coded it yourself in... aren't you <laughs> yeah yeah okay so i did code a bit of it myself but it was a little <laughs> bit of um training because when i were in these different bigger organizations i was in leadership position you know i have yeah. a team i have 20 phds working for me right so i wasn't writing code a whole lot or in or at all <laughs> by yeah. the time i left google so when I started really um, digging through healthcare, started prototyping, building an MVP, 
it was a little bit um, of a learning experience for myself as well. Just like getting from very rusty coding to learning to code again. Interesting, in the yeah. beginning, I yeah. So in the beginning, I do I did have to pick up a little bit of coding. I obviously got a lot of help from my colleagues, um, whether you know they were at Google or elsewhere to help me out a little bit mm. as well. But yeah, so in the beginning, I was one of the um, key developer of the system, and I built uh, a good amount of backend. And that was, uh, I would say, that was our MVP. It was very, very MVP. And yeah. as a technologist, I think the experience um, at a little startup was so helpful because you learn what's available in the open source market. You learn how to build software using existing stuff, right? Like you know, yeah. you're like there's AWS, there's like Heroku, there's all these things that you can use readily available, and oftentimes it's very, very simple. So I think that transition was really helpful from a big, bigger company to a smaller company before founding my own company, because you pick up all these toolkits that nice. you know. Yeah, definitely. So tell me about your journey raising money then, because I, am, <laughs> I imagine, and this is now uh, my bias, but you know, PhD from Stanford in engineering, ex-Google, ex-LinkedIn, now wants to start her own startup. I imagine seed money was pretty, pretty easy to come across when you've got that sort of background. I don't know if anybody would ever say money is easy. <laughs> Good, that's definitely the right answer. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you're trying to convince people of your dream, right? Uh, yeah. In my case, it was also, you know, like, hey, you're a data scientist, you're a PhD, I trust you to build recommendation system. What do you know about healthcare, right? That, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, I would say uh, we have an easier time raising, but it's not easy. It is uh, a little bit about, um, and I actually really enjoyed that process. It's a little bit about self-reflection, right? Like convincing yourself as well, right? Like, have you done enough market research? Have you really looked around every corner to build a business case around what you're building? So that I actually think was a great exercise for every entrepreneur. Do you know what? You actually, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna jump in there because I I I completely agree with you. I think having helped a lot of companies try and get seed cash, I think humility is one of the most important things for entrepreneurs and founders to have because when people get knocked back they have to take this feedback and they have to genuinely ask themselves the question that that investor has now just asked them. Like in your case, you know, have you got enough healthcare knowledge? And the answer is I don't need the healthcare knowledge because I've experienced it as a patient and that's enough for me. But I imagine you have to, if you get that, if you get told that three or four times, you don't know enough about healthcare, you've got to ask yourself the question you've got to think, well, maybe I actually do need to bring someone in with that healthcare experience or, or whatever it is, you know? And I think there's far too much kind of, oh, well, you know, they've said this, they've said that, but I know best I'm the entrepreneur. And I think, you know, when you get feedback, you know, listen to it, but never listen to all of it. I completely get that. But, you know, if you're getting the same thing a few times, you need the humility to ask yourselves the questions, right? I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. This is so true on both sides of the table because I'm also a, yeah. a part-time investor. I am an equity partner at Data Collective. I'm a venture partner at AV8. So a few VC funds, right? Yeah, and so you on sit on that side, side of the so table I too. I sit on the other side of the table too. So sometimes I also feel like, wow, the entrepreneur is educating me on their market, right? Like yeah. I better really try to understand this before I try to invest, right? So I think humility is so important. And you oftentimes wait someone's opinion, right? Like 
yeah. you collect data points. I'm a data scientist. <laughs> <In my heart. laughs> you collect a lot of data points. You then weight the data points, right? Like oh, I was, was going to ask you how you make your investment data. decisions, but data-driven <laughs> is going to be the answer, so I'm not going to bother. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and even like with alpha and with every decision we make, we try to be as data-driven as possible. Although in a very early stage market, there's only so much data available, right? But I think that's so true. And that's also how we select investors, right? Mm. Like when we look at raising a seed round and we just close our series A, um, I think humility is super important. I obviously want investors who have experience in these areas, but also just have the humility to, you know, I like want to understand more and want yeah. to learn and be on the journey with nice. Did you raise your series A pre-launch or post-launch? Because you only post-launch. launched a month. You, you did it post. Uh, we, uh, so we launched our membership program last month. However, before that, we were live. We were serving patients. Got it. So we were, quote unquote, launched before that. Got it. So we extended our services last month. Fine. So you did your series A on the, the hockey stick graph of, you know, users yep. and daily active, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Yep. Um, yep. So the, the classic Silicon Valley dream again, rearing <laughs> its head. <laughs> Here's our hockey stick graph. Give me series A money. Classic. So I wish, I wish it's that easy. Oh, is it not? <laughs> no, no, surely it is. Easy. Surely it is. It's Silicon Valley. No. <laughs> Fundraising is never, never easy, but I do think like it, it is a very introspective journey. Like you yeah. learn so much, you hear no's, you hear people's opinion, and you then try to figure out, okay, what is the best way forward for the company, right? Mm. It really, like, I, I have very little ego in this. And yeah. a lot of the feedback that you get from different VCs, you then try to think about, okay, like, how do I take that information, maybe with a grain of salt, and yeah. figure out how to move the company forward in the best way possible. Because then yeah. nobody can presume you know the best like you know the best path for right like you keep collecting more data points and then you course mm. correct and vc is not the only form of uh get the only place to get capital i mean that's the one thing that seems to baffle me with startups they get told quite a lot that this isn't a vc backable company for x y and z reason and it seems yeah. like that quite often falls on deaf ears i mean it, you must see that quite a lot in your venture partner roles and equity partner roles etc that you know you can just look at this business and just say look you know it it, it might be big but it's not big enough or, or whatever it is you know that means it's not for vc yeah just start to take that feedback that we... well in, in your experience um, yeah, <laughs> it's <laughs> often quite hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you tell someone this is not venture backable, right? Like classic example um, in healthcare, people who want to, you know, like buy a clinic and then roll it out, right? That's yeah. Not yeah. Typically venture backable. That's a PE private equity. Correct. Product, yeah. <laughs> uh, but when you t- tell entrepreneurs that, it's oftentimes uh, medicine that's really hard to get down. <laughs> so yeah. you try to say it in a different way, right? Like, look, like there are certain type of return that VCs are looking for. And again, like oftentimes explaining to the entrepreneur how VC money works is helpful as well, because oftentimes mm. they don't understand, you know, like, where does the money come from? What is the LP? Like LPs have different asset class. That's why yeah. venture falls into this bucket, that sort of thing. So those are helpful as well. So at the moment then, what's, exciting you from an from an investment perspective i am very uh biased (laughs) (laughs) data science (laughs) phd from stanford (laughs) 
Um, I think digital health and in general applying technology to healthcare is super exciting. Like yeah. when you look at the inefficiency, when you look at every corner of healthcare, right? Like we're in squarely in digital health and patient and provider experience. But everywhere you look, like in the pharmacy space, in the PBM space, in you know, like even brick and mortar clinics, right? Like everywhere you look, there's just like such opportunity i was gonna say such opportunity yeah yeah and and it does take a little bit more time i would say to build a healthcare company the barrier is heavier because it's very very regulated right like um as an entrepreneur and again as someone who writes code you can't just pull let's say you can't just go to shopify and do a page (laughs) because it's not hippo compliant (laughs) so things like that it's it's gonna take a little while but the return and i think just you know the impact of building something in healthcare oftentimes it's so rewarding. And I think the opportunity is very, uh, it is just, it's worth a lot of investment dollars. Yeah. And what's the future for Alpha then? So you've raised your Series A, you're, I assume now, entering a period of growth of the team and all your other metrics, hopefully. What do you see as the kind of next stage in the next sort of 12 months? Yeah, so the next 12 months is, essentially growing our services and growing our footprint. So as we continue to build out our mission and vision, we're looking to expand into more area, more service areas, right? So more telemedicine areas. Yeah, okay. We truly want to be, we truly want to be able to treat the patient for everything that can be treated online for. So that's one thing that's really important. And I think that also set us apart from a lot of other players. We're not looking to verticalize. We're not looking to verticalize. Yeah, you're quite focused simple. on this specific. It's it's almost like you're you're focused in a way that I've not heard before, which is purely on the experience of the patient, but as a consumer, as a user, just exactly as they would use Netflix or Amazon or whatever. That's what you're focused on. You're focused on just providing the services that can be done that way so you're you're coming more from the technology side than you are from trying to think oh what you know i really want to solve women's health i really want to solve this or that the other you're more going well this is how things can be this is all these are all the things that can be treated in this super efficient way let's just find out what else can be treated in a super efficient way and add that to our offering that's that's something that i've not actually heard before yeah, that's exactly our focus. And over the next 12 months or so, that's where we're going to be spending our energy. Also, we're growing our geographical coverage. Mm-hmm. So in the U.S., you have to, in healthcare, you have to go state by state because every state's regulation, every state's telemedicine regulation is a little different. It makes no yeah. sense to me. <laughs> Biology yeah. doesn't change across state line. I don't know why, <laughs> but that's the way that it. So uh, we are currently live in nine states and we cover 50% of the population. So we're looking to mm. grow more and expand our coverage there as well. Oh, very cool. And from an investment perspective, I know that obviously the, the digital health and data science stuff excites you. What do you look for in teams? So there'll be loads of people listening that, I mean, there'll be some people listening that definitely want to email you about alpha and, and how to, how to grow, uh, join your growing team. But for the people listening that are interested in, in their, getting their digital health uh, startup funded, what sort of things do you look for in those entrepreneurs uh, alongside obviously a, a solid idea, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I oftentimes look for two things. One, 
um, understanding of the system, specifically in healthcare, just because of the misalignment, right? You have the payer, yeah. you have the providers, you have patients. The patients oftentimes don't really. And how do you assess that? that do you thing. assess that from from them being a domain expert, so somebody that's existed in the system, perhaps a clinician or something along those lines, or do they have to maybe have gone through it from a patient perspective, or do you just look for something along those lines? I think. Um, typically the founding team can, you know, it consists of more than one person, right? Like, so if yeah. you're not the expert, surround yourself with experts. I think that's totally fine. And that's what I've done before as well. And then oftentimes you can also assess this through just like conversation with the entrepreneur. Yeah, It's natively like curiosity, right? Like wanting to get to the bottom of it, like really truly understanding how your business works. I think that's super important. And from discussion, from conversation with entrepreneurs, you oftentimes can find out if they truly, truly understand the market they're going after. So that's one thing that I look for often. The second thing that I look for is just passion in the area that they're solving for, right? Like whether it's a patient experience, whether it is, you know, they're a former clinician who really is tired of not practicing at the top of their license, that sort of thing. Yeah. Like some, that, that's, also, that's just so important, right? Like, because with a startup, it's high risk. You're giving up a lot of good other alternatives, right? Like I gave up Google, <laughs> very comfortable yeah. to build a startup that's very risky. I think having the drive and really truly wanting to solve the problem from whatever, whatever perspective it is that you're coming from, that is very, very important so important that motivation bit is absolutely key again i bang on about this on this podcast so often but you need to wait be able to wake up in the morning and run through a brick wall to solve this problem every single day because in healthcare it's hard with all the regulations with all the exactly. struggles with fundraising with all the struggles with all the operational stuff you know it's it's just problem after problem and and to solve you know so th that motivation is absolutely key and you know most of the startups that we support have either been in fact i'd say almost if not all of them have you know there's at least somebody in there that's been a patient or a family member or a clinician that has experienced yep. it and lived it to such a degree that they just are you know that they will run through that brick wall. <laughs> yeah well yeah they just can't take it yeah exactly genuinely yeah i mean that's it's it's the same reason that, that i started hs with alex you know that I, I was existing in a system that needed new technology and it needed it at scale. And so I joined an accelerator that helped that, you know, helped me look at startups across lots of different clinical areas, across lots of technologies. And I stayed in that sector because actually my ability to, to choose them and help them and, and stuff wasn't just restricted to one. I learned how to do it for multiple. So it just made sense for me to stay in this bit. And I think, you must feel that too, right? You know, you've got the alpha stuff, which is obviously you solving a specific problem, but then you can, you, you can use that knowledge and, and all your background and stuff in, in your investment stuff, which, which allows you to, to do that at scale, which must be quite rewarding. Exactly. And again, that's um, the, the drive, the motivation, the, the desire to really do something different, right? Like, I think that's, that's so important. Yeah. Completely. And you know what, as well, I, th I think, you know, your background as an engineer, I, I know we've talked about this already, but just to highlight it again, that having a background that is not from healthcare, I think, again, is so important. I, I think the ability to look at healthcare with fresh eyes 
and by fresh eyes, I mean, you know, also with the expertise of something completely different. I mean, we, we hear all the time in healthcare, you know, comparisons with the airline industry and, and especially in anesthetics as well. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, it's, it's so dull hearing it all the time, but you know, it, it's a different point of view to look at. It's a different lens to look at healthcare through, right? right? The same with a data scientist, the same with a computer scientist, the same with, you know, anybody that's slightly different, you know, in fact, one of the, one of the funnest guests I've had on this podcast is a guy called Mir Imran. I think he did electrical engineering, chemical engineering, and then medicine, never practiced a day as a doctor, but he just learned all the problems to solve and then exactly how to solve them through all his engineering stuff. And he's had like 20 life science companies. He's got 400 patents to his name. He's got like three venture funds now. And, you know, he, he just knows how to solve problems because he's got this like incredibly varied background. And I think, there's this swell of, of clinicians now that have got medicine and something else. And I think when those people hit the wards and they hit, you know, the, host, the hospitals and the, and the GP practices and all these different things, they can just view things with a completely different lens that I guess the pure clinicians can't. So I, I, I absolutely advocate people that have nothing to do with healthcare getting into healthcare because as I say, that <laughs> fresh, those fresh eyes and that fresh opinion is, is worth so much in the startup game. I think so. A lot of technologists are actually very interested in healthcare. Just, you know, like in the U.S., it's about almost a quarter of GDP is in healthcare, right? Yeah. So like a lot of us are really motivated to change how healthcare is currently being run. And I think outside of just a, a pure technologist lens to how the system is being built, just like putting like a consumer lens on it, right? It makes zero sense. <laughs> yeah. But as a consumer, does it, is it working for me? No, it isn't. Is it working like Prime? No, it isn't. Right? There isn't a Prime for healthcare. There isn't an Uber for healthcare. Why isn't there one? So I think just like putting a consumer lens on it or a technologist lens on it, no matter what it is, just like figuring out why it isn't working. I think that that's, that's what yeah. driven a lot of non-healthcare people into healthcare. And I think uh, I think watch this space when you when you talk about Prime because uh, we know that Amazon, <laughs> J.P. Morgan, and Berkshire Hathaway yep, are cooking yep. something up in the background. So <laughs> I'm sure there might be something uh, along those lines very soon. Um, Gloria, yep. this has been awesome. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Great chat. And um, yeah, I, I I can't believe the time's already gone. But what's left to say from from my point of view is that the way that we end these podcasts is. I hand back over to you to kind of summarize a little bit about yourself, a little bit about what you're doing at Alpha and close us out with any asks that you've got of our audience. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's great um, talking to you on a podcast. So in summary, what we're building here at Alpha, it's a completely new system of care for women. We are a synchronous telemedicine platform for women. We cover urgent care, mental health, women's health, and so on and so forth. That's what we're building here. We want to be the first point of triage for all women's healthcare needs online. Um, for as far as asks for the audience, I encourage everybody in our geographical area to try out Alpha, Alpha Medical. Awesome. And if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to find you? Gloria at HelloAlpha.com. Awesome. And for our listeners, I will stick that email and all the links to Alpha and everything that Gloria does in her investor roles in the description of this podcast. So Gloria, thanks so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Good talking to you. Hey, everybody. And thanks for listening to this week's episode and making it all the way to the end. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. 
and you can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all of our socials so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content. Thank you.